Well, welcome to Office Hours. If you're new here you, and watching on YouTube, you can find out about what we do at officehours.global. Um, feel free to put your questions in. This way, you become the producers of the show. You determine uh, where we go and what questions we answer. We have a fine panel this morning for you. So please go ahead, put your questions in. We're happy to answer um, all of your questions on media and events. So Mitch, let's get things started. Thank you, Josh, if that's really who you are. Uh, first question in from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Best six or more port USB chargers for 20 watts minimum per port. 100 clams or less would be smooth. 500 bones would be a deal breaker. Fantastic. Well, um, I do appreciate um, having a particular brand that's helpful whenever choosing some of these commodity devices. In the past, I've gone with the Anchor products, and they tend to have a pretty significant brand. Um, so I think it's, uh, I think it's, um, you probably can't go wrong with that. Let's go to our next question. Next question from myself. Uh, what is your favorite song to test audio quality on any device? Go ahead, Dave. Well, uh, since the early days of stereo, I have used the Doobie Brothers from the Captain and Me album, Without You. It starts off real nice and easy, and then it builds to a huge crescendo at the end and allows me to test speakers. Um, I don't use music uh, to do any streaming tests because there's so many factors involved in the inputting and the outputting and the transmission. So um, it's for live and... Um, um, analog uh, sound checks. I was going to ask you about that, Dave, too. So you, those are your speaker checks. Do you have a favorite set of cans that you like to check? Well, I, I come from the old live music uh, performance kind of thing, so it's more a test of a PA system. Uh, if you can put that through a PA system, you can get an idea of how loud it's going to be in the room. So, all right. JBLs, uh, you know, all the usual... Uh, large format community, big giant speakers. That, that's what that's used for. Gotcha. Mitchell. My favorite song is IGY by Donald Fagan from the Nightfly album. It's just uh, loaded with uh, Steely Dan kind of goodness, lots of highs, lots of lows. And um, it's well recorded, it's extremely well recorded. And uh, it just happens to be my favorite. It was funny. I went to a, uh, a special um, showing at NAB uh, not too long ago for the folks at uh, Telos. And uh, my friend Frank Foti was there. And uh, he was getting ready to test out a new uh, uh, processor device. And he said, anybody got their favorite uh, song for testing? And psh, I pulled my Nightfly album out. And uh, Frank pulled his out. And we both said, we both like the same song for testing processing. So there we go. Nightfly, IGY. Nice. Guy? I got two. One is more of an album. These are for more critical listening. I, I haven't uh, done this in, in about 20 years. I used to be a, a, just a sound aficionado. I used to sit there and go into these stereo stores and just try out everything. And uh, the song that I would use is an album called Jazz at the Pawn Shop. If you haven't heard it, it's amazing it's an amazing recorded for those that are into high fidelity that's one of the standards 
And then uh, my neighbor's the one who turned me on to all this stuff. He had about 25,000 bucks and speakers, Bowers and Wilkins. And uh, we would listen to uh, uh, Aaron, Aaron Neville's Everybody Plays the Fool. So that's the song that I still use to this day, just because I know all the nuances of every little instrument and every little hit. So Aaron, yeah, that's Aaron Neville. Muted, Josh. Josh disappeared. Uh, Josh is Whoops. muted. That's a problem. That's over. Okay. Say there's there's no exception to that rule. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> well, actually, you're asking about the kind of cans I use. Well, I did use that uh, Doobie Brothers song when I first got my aftershocks, and uh, it tickled. So it's been reported when you have the bone conducting stuff, when you get the really loud bass and stuff, it actually tickles. So if you want to tickle yourself, uh, use the Doobie Brothers. Go ahead, Mitchell. All right, well, look, so, so we're crossing over into playback devices that we like uh, for testing out our favorite songs. Uh, back in the day, JBL 100s, remember those with the burnt orange uh, egg crate uh, uh, thing on the front of it? They were, if you had a JBL 100, you were cool. And then as time went on, um, different types of, I like, I love Dahlquist speakers. They had some really cool ones uh, back in the day. And nowadays, it's Genelec. That's what really sounds sweet to my ears. All right. So hopefully then, um, Mitchell, thanks for the question and thanks for the answers. And as we've mentioned before, it's a fantastic panel. So if you'd like to, to get in on this knowledge base, feel free. Later on, we're going to cut over to our education hour. So we're looking at a little bit of AI. Let's go to our next question. Next one in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. What is an effective way to sync Google Photos and Apple Photos to a combined location in the cloud and locally? For example, Symology. Maybe you meant Synology. I'm not sure. And what AI is available to sort and categorize your photos? John. For most people, I think the easiest thing to do to make sure you have multiple copies is just download the Google Photos app to your devices and then have iCloud PhotoSync turned on as well. You'll have a couple copies. They will not synchronize with each other, but both Google and Apple have plenty enough AI for most people to find the photos they're looking for. I think it's better just to have them everywhere and then try to find them when you need them because realistically, most people are not actively looking through their photos. And Seth? So uh, we're all in on the Apple ecosystem, and we wanted a way to have a local copy of all of our photos. So I solved it with the Synology Photos app that you can install on the NAS. Uh, what's pretty cool about it is that it's cross-platform, so iOS, Android app that you install on your phone. And so long as that Photos app has uh, access to, to your uh, full library, it will actually download a uh, full uh, and local copy of your entire cloud photo library so you can have that on site on your NAS. Uh, works pretty well, um, pretty seamless. You can also then in turn back up that Synology to the cloud if you wanted a, an extra copy. Uh, as far as the AI is concerned, Synology Photos does have some AI. It's, it's okay. Uh, it's not as good as the uh, Google Photos uh, magic eye, but for uh, being able to have a local copy of your photos and backing everything up from the cloud, it's pretty effective. I would not have thought to use the NAS. Uh, good idea. And Seth, I believe that's your uh, first comment for the day. Welcome. Um, wh where are you from? From uh, just north of uh, Boston, Mass. All right. Welcome. Thank you. And Serge. 
if you don't have an ass, one thing you could do, and I did in the past, is to use my uh, iMac. If you have enough storage on that iMac, you can set up uh, Apple Photo to keep a copy of everything in your computer. So that way, uh, if you lose access to your cloud or if you have any issue. And another thing I like about that is I don't give access to my Apple Cloud to a third-party app or anything that I do not trust 100%. It's not that I don't trust Synology. It's just having an app in Synology that will be able to access my library. I think it could be a security concern. All right. Fantastic. Well, some uh, great answers then. Paul, hope that answered your question. Let's go to our next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Sony has recently introduced a pair of Walkman digital audio players that run a full Android operating system. Do you think there's a place for dedicated portable audio devices in the smartphone era? Go ahead, Dave. I don't know if you're ever going to replace this baby. I lived with this baby for a very long time. This is a uh, Sony Walkman Sports. Um, th this is before the cell phone. And um, I also went into the iPod world. Uh, I used the tiniest little one that could clip on you, on your coat or your shirt for jogging, and uh, it held lots of songs. That one kept me alive uh, for a long time. And then I got into the iPod Touch uh, just about the time the smartphone came out. And I found the iPhone Touch to be really useful. It had, of course, apps on it as well, but uh, the quality out of that was uh, very, very good. Um, I haven't looked at this Walkman uh, product, and I uh, don't know uh, what its capabilities are, but I sure hope it has very good uh, A to D and D to A processing, and that it'll handle uh, connected ear earphones. So let's see how it goes. Yeah, I know that guy from Garden of the Galaxy didn't want to give up his Walkman either forever. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I don't think it would be uh, fair to Sony if we didn't give a little history. Uh, Sony was the first out with the Walkman cassette player way, way, way back when, and it revolutionized the way people consume music, and they made mixtapes and things like that. It was at a time when cassettes were just coming out and uh, were interested. Uh, uh, people would transfer their LPs uh, to their cassettes. And then uh, that sort of faded out um, for a while there. I think uh, right about the same time that uh, the iPod came out from uh, Apple, which completely blew that one in the weeds. And I think Sony responded with the MD player. Remember the old MD optical disc? And that wasn't a bad player either, but it just never really caught on That with the A-track uh, audio system. And then they got did a kind of like a, a curveball. Uh, they came out with the Watchman, which I still have. It's a DV8 uh, Sony uh, player. And, uh, and I think there's quite a bit of time has passed uh, since that came out and this new device that uh, Sony is touting as a digital player. And I think that Sony's late to the game again here because um, I don't think people are consuming uh, music on dedicated players. They want a multifunction player like even even though I have an old one, uh, like your iPhone or an Android phone, uh, you can you can all that stuff can live on there. Your phone, your uh, music player, your video player, your camera, all of those things uh, can be on one thing. So unless Sony's able to uh, make a, a camera or an iPhone or a phone device that uh, can do all of those things, I think that uh, it's just going to be another uh, flash in the pan for them. Sorry to see it happen that way because I'm a big Sony fan, as you all know. 
kind of search. Yeah, I read about that device because I wonder what Sony was thinking <laughs> by releasing it. Uh, from what I read, it's a full Android device. So at that point, I I don't have the confirmation, but it could be great if we could access, let's say, Apple Music with the last list or Tidal or Spotify HQ. And they say that they put a, a nice uh, headphone amp in that device. They have an headphone jack. They have two headphone jacks, if I read correctly. So I'm, I'm not saying I'm going to buy that device, but it seems to be interesting because I'm not going to buy a device that I need to rip CDs and go back to that whole process. So let's say, let's see if that device delivers what they, they promise. And Sky? To Mitch's comment, I bought a camera the other day that I could make phone calls on. And in the combination of all of these elements that we're shoving into the small device that the, the battery's power has, uh, the capacity, the live capabilities, because we have networks now of, of the, uh, the cell networks. So there's so many more conveniences now. But Mitch, I, I did want to remind you that Microsoft put their toe in that water with the Zune. Yeah, we, we, we remember that one. Um, Mitchell. I was just going to say, I, yeah, the Zune was, was uh, kind of cool, I guess. Uh, Microsoft, like so many devices they came out with, they quickly squelched it. But there was actually something out uh, as a, a digital player before uh, the iPad or the iPod. Um, it was a thing that was developed by Hewlett-Packard. It was about this size. It was green. It was a hard disk player called the HandGo. And uh, I think that they abandoned it and uh, a company uh, in Asia started making them. And of course, I had to be the first guy to have that. But uh, as I think back, uh, a lot of different, I think Roku um, had some uh, portable devices uh, that, were hard, that were solid state. Uh, and you could put about 20 or 30 songs or an album's worth of music on it. Just put a lot of devices to come out. But nothing that works as well as this as far as playing music and taking pictures and answering the occasional phone call. Guy? Yeah, I was trying to pull up the website for the uh, the high-res audio. So the thing about this, these are really meant for people that really enjoy music and are willing to spend the kind of bucks because so when we're listening to something off like the apple music store we're probably at like 128 uh kilobits per second so this one will do 384 um, in fact in spotify a lot of people don't realize this but there is a high res mode in spotify go into your preferences and you'll be well those that have trained our ears to hear nuances in music will appreciate that additional headroom that is in these recorders and in the appropriate recording. So there are certain websites that you can go to and you can buy these uh, these less lossless tracks because everything these days is just so uh, compressed and thrown away. Like there's a lot of data that's just not there anymore. And for those of us that really uh, have trained our ears, you can hear the difference. So this isn't meant for normal people. It's meant for people that want to, that really appreciate that extra little bit of clarity and, and are willing to pay for it. I mean, it it's amazing. You walk into a Best Buy, 95% of what people hear you can buy off the shelf, but then there's like these other people that go to these high-end stores and it's just that it's not even 5%. It's probably like 1% of people that are willing to pay, you know, five times as much to get that extra 5%. So where most people spend a thousand bucks, I have friends that'll spend 10,000, 20,000, 30,000. And CES has a whole hotel full of these rooms that are just, uh, 
$50,000 systems. You walk in and you're like, that's a house, you know, like, <laughs> why would you spend that kind of money? But there's people, it's like their boat, their golf game, their hobby. And so there's people out there that just crave it. And it's, it's a, it's a slippery slope to go down when you're buying cables that cost a thousand bucks. Believe me, I have some upstairs that are thousand dollar cables. You got to leave some room in your budget so that the people say so the contractor can shingle your, your audio system for you. Um, go ahead, John. Yeah. And that audience that guy's talking about is close to zero people. As soon as music became available for free or cheap, people stopped caring about the quality of it. I mean, think the time of Napster when we were listening to 16 or 24 K music and people that was acceptable to most people. So most people, most of the time are just going to stream stuff from their phone. And Serge. I, I'm not one of these people. I, I, I like the fact that Apple Music is improving and other services are improving. And the other thing is, I don't mind that the device will not be able to do a call, but an, a data connection on it all the time, a SIM card would be fine. Chris. Yeah, I always, when these discussions always, when these discussions come up, I like to remind people that the world used VHS for three decades when beta was much better and an option. People ultimately, the, the bell curve of people ultimately really can't tell the difference. This group is not an accurate sampling of the rest of humanity. I wonder if we're enough to, to pay the, the price to have a low volume product to, to be supported. Um, go ahead, Sky. Well, early days of, okay, I'm kind of riffing here early days of HD when it was being broadcast, I was acknowledging that HDNet out of uh, Houston, Mark Cuban's aspect of, of the, the idea of broadcasting over high definition was full signal. But Fox took that same bandwidth and split it into quarters. And consequently, that meant they had the opportunity of sending out four different revenue streams from the same F in the uh, regulated HD signal that they were they're sending out. So, again, the business of, of this and the cons to the consumer public, uh, are we being trained to not like it or guide? Do you think there's an opportunity that people are going to feel the difference if they, they if they get the experience? Most people just don't care. I mean, you go to a movie theater and you get to hear something that's pretty, pretty profound. I mean, that's, you can hear details in those, but a, a lot of people, they, again, they just don't have the trained ear and you got to appreciate those nuances. And unless you sit there, it's kind of like learning about scotch or, you know, whatever your cooking thing you're into It's you got to train the palate. And once you appreciate it, you, you, again, you start to crave it. So I think you, most people aren't going to care. And I, like Chris said, like th this group might care, then you got to go in, you got to have somebody just walk you through it. And it's a process. But yeah, I used to sit there and listen to music for hours in a chair and just listen for little details. And like a, I saw Chris Fenwick's reaction when I said that I had those cables. It wasn't until I bought the final uh, interconnects. So there, there's two things. There's something called interconnects, which is what you use the old RCAs or XLRs that'll go in between your your amp. I had a Bryston 3BST or still have it. And then some Bowers and Wilkins speakers. And it wasn't until I got those final speakers or they're silver. Uh, once I got those, it opened the whole thing up. But it wasn't until then that I could hear the details because I, I thought I was just using an Ethernet cable and I braided them together and that's what, what my speaker cable was. But it wasn't until I got the really good ones that I did a bunch of research on and finally bought them. And they're only five feet long, but they're really expensive and sound really, really good. Then your wife said, turn it down. 
And I was looking at the specs. Did they announce what the price is? It sounds like they're positioning this for a low volume, you know, high margin uh, uh, device, but I do not see anything in the specs or the release as far as what the, the pricing is going to be. Uh, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, in response to Guy and Chris, quality of listening and that kind of thing frustrated me through the 70s and 80s because I'd go into other people's, uh, other guys' apartments or uh, houses or whatever, and they'd say, hey, come listen to this on my stereo. And I'd be hearing out-of-phase speakers, and I'd hear clipping, and I'd hear all kinds of distortion in the system because, of course, they knew very little about what how to tune it and make it sound good. And also, you know, positioning speakers in a room is even a consideration. And I found it very frustrating for a long time. And then when things started to People became knowledgeable. They became more aware of what what a good system should sound like, and a lot of the bad transistors were replaced with good ones. Um, then it started to sound a whole lot better. But yeah, Chris is right. We all watch VHS for a very long time because of the convenience of it, not so much our need to see every detail in a, a film or a TV show. Uh, DVD, of course, improved that to a great degree, and then HD DVD or uh, Blu-ray came along, and now we were watching high definition. But a lot of people can't distinguish that stuff. And certainly in my household, my wife can't hear some things that I can hear uh, in in music or audio. And that's just like he, the guy is saying, you've trained yourself. You have a palate for it. And um, just as Alex is always talking about, you know, he can always see the crushed blacks in a in a compression and all the rest, we're, we're all tuned to see it. So maybe Sony knows there's a bunch of people out there that, that need this or there's a... Uh, an income bracket who are in their penthouses wanting the best thing to impress their friends. So it, it may have a market big enough for Sony. And I know that there are stipulations in Japan as to where you can talk on your phone or listen to the thing. They certainly don't like it when you have your things on a speakerphone in a bus or a, on a train. So uh, that sort of thing might mean that they want high quality in your ears uh, while you're in a loud train or in a station somewhere. And Mitchell. Well, uh, Chris was talking about three decades of VHS. There was another Sony device, I forgot to mention, uh, that used VHS tape to play back uh, digital audio. It was the PCM F1, which I had. It was a device that uh, connected to the uh, video in and out, and it used that uh, video signal to send a, uh, a linear PCM file into and out of the device to get uh, high-quality audio. So that was one of the first digital devices. This is before DVD, which, by the way, I also have a Sony DVD player, so it's kind of cool. And to uh, Guy's point uh, about the big wire, uh, the important wire for hooking up your speakers, there's a reason we do that. It's not just uh, so you can have bragging rights for the, uh, rights for the uh, thickest cable connecting your speakers. Uh, there's a thing called damping factor, and it's uh, the way uh, that the amplifier transfers power to the transducer and the speaker. And uh, the smaller the, uh, the wire, the more uh, impedance uh, uh, goes up, and the more impedance goes up, you're reflecting power back to the amplifier. It's called dampening. And uh, the bigger that wire is, the better uh, transfer of uh, power into that transducer, the better quality. And it, it is a night and day difference when you've got a high-quality amplifier that is capable of driving uh, a, uh, um, a speaker. Because a lot of here, I'm going to go off on a crazy uh, rant. Uh, a lot of speakers aren't eight ohms. 
they vary depending upon the frequency that's going into them. So you need a wide range of uh, 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 impedance uh, uh, abilities for the amplifier to drive that. Big wires do the job. And Dave. Well, I was just going to ask Mitch, you know, what's the opening date for your museum? Because uh, we'd all like to come and visit. I, I think you should put it all on display and charge admission. Sure. I've got it all right here. Fantastic. Let's go to our next question. Next question in from Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. Show us the desk you use, what's on it, over it, under it, and does it raise and lower, and is it on wheels? Go ahead, Sky. I'm going to participate in the conversation. In your imagination, it's a nice, clean space. So the, the NDA that I've had people sign when they are invited into my space is is uh, for a reason. No, I I do have just a standard old IKEA desk, but it is cluttered and it's it's embarrassing and shameful. But I'm going to talk about the the motorized desk that I get to work at over at my editor director's house, and I'm going to promote that. Because that, I think, is uh, very functional. But I'm also inspired by Mr. Finwick here, who has completely rearranged his, his room for a reason, if he wants to talk about that. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, we saw a really cool desk at uh, CES, but it was $8,000. Oh, man, we're expensive friends. I'll put a link to the chat, and it was called the 3D desk. But to answer Paul's question, I'll go ahead and flip to my behind the scenes over the shoulder. I'm testing this Ergotron desk, which is a... It's more of a cart, so it is on wheels, and it can work down, and it can go up. And the other one over here is um, um, just a regular desk with um, some kind of tray thing on it. But yeah, so I got the Wacom here. I've got the the Rodecaster. I've got my my four up here. I got the prompter, which you can see over there. I got another uh, monitor down below, and then I got another monitor over there. And the iPad with a swing on arm. Stream Deck, Stream Deck keyboards down here, and then the foot pedal here, uh, ATEM here. Um, that's about it. Go ahead, Mitchell. And uh, here's my desk. I don't know if you really want to see it, but uh, I'll roll it down. Here's a rack where I've got uh, my audio stuff. By the way, that's the uh, top 20 songs for 1920, excuse me, 2022. Um, over here, my ATEM, uh, my studio technologies, my uh, old iPhone. Uh, my sonic screwdriver, um, over here, my microphone, stream deck, uh, switching, uh, editing system, ancient cinema displays, which I like to use, and this desk doesn't raise and lower. And below it, I have my uh, M1. I guess I can show it to you. My M1 is mounted under the desk with a uh, blower on it to keep it cool, and there it is, chugging away, very happy. And uh, that's it. That's all I got. And John. I use a six foot Husky workbench, which is adjustable with a hand crank and it's on wheels. So it's easy to move. It's very sturdy and it was very cheap. Good guy. I just realized that I didn't cut when I went to show that. So again, here's that setup, the Wacom on the Ergotron. So the Ergotron's a cart that uh, we were using with our one button studio and it's got a little keyboard tray below stream deck. And then there's a little arm for when I had the red here, this was my control for the red. Big monitor over there, 43-inch uh, LG quad, and then the ATEM, and then the prompter is dead in front of me over there. So you guys can see all that stuff. It's uh, If you have any questions, Paul, uh, hit me in after hours, and we can show you how this thing goes up and down and how high it goes, but I can't do it right now. 
Yeah, we do have we do have a uh, a ruthless review that we do. It's a behind the scenes BTS. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, that's where we get to see the the behind the scenes. I don't have mine set up, but to answer your question, Paul, instead of having the desk that raises for a standing configuration, I just have the ergonomic keyboard and the keyboard and holds the mouse tray, and so my uh, I have stacks of monitors that. I can reach as well as my touch screens for a seated or standard position. So I just pull the keyboard tray up. And what I don't have though, is I don't have um, a second teleprompter that's in the standing position. So if I stand up, you'll just see shirt from this position. But if I wanted to work from a standing position, I can, I can stand just put the, the keyboard with the uh, keyboard and mouse raised up. Uh, go ahead, Chris. Uh, yeah, I just want to show you. So, uh, I'm, I'm using a variety of desks and computers, uh, microphones and cameras. I like to put them around the perimeter of the room and push them right up against the walls. That way it, it keeps me from getting behind there and repatching things incessantly. So if I keep things every, if I keep everything up against the wall, it means I won't, you know, accidentally go back there and change things too much. All right, so we've gotten a, <laughs> gotten quite the quite the tour. Uh, let's go to our next question. From Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin, is there a reference for making graphics on a 360 video like Lower Thirds to make them look as level as possible? Yeah, and I did. It's been a while since I've um, messed with. I have a, a 360 camera, and I've done some editing on it on an NLE. And um, one of the, um, I think New Blue had some some add-ons or or, or uh, different effects that you could use for that. So you might check that out, Jeffrey. Let's go to our next question. Next question in from myself uh, asking, can we review the good, better, and best setup you can use for quality connection on Zoom? Go ahead, Mitchell. Um, mine's sort of a combination of them. I think we've all decided that uh, we love the uh, 360 Live uh, camera. So I would kind of start out with there, and any money you might have saved by not buying the big FX3 like I've got here, um, you might spend it on a good microphone like an MV7 uh, and de decent lights. I kind of went uh, over the top with uh, my main key light up right up there as a light panel, uh, Astra soft uh, uh, panel, one by one. And then the rest of them are uh, NAND lights, and they work great for what I need. So I, I mean, I, I think you could put a, a pretty darn good low-end, uh, and it's really not fair to call it low-end, we'll call it less expensive system for about $5,000. Go, Serge. Well, uh, I don't know if that question was... To, sh to uh, for me to show you that the quality of my video is now better because I'm using uh, a new video capture device, the Roland video capture device that uh, it's supposed to be uncompressed, and I don't have the black uh, crush anymore. If I'm game enough, I will switch to my Black Magic, and uh, hopefully, yeah, now you see that my video it's. A lot darker and not as defined as it was just a few seconds ago. So uh, it's it's um, sure it's more expensive than just use an ATEM Mini directly with your computer because you're using an ATEM and now another capture device to 
bring it to your uh, to your computer. But Guy, I think, has good reference on rolling device that will be able to replace an ATEM uh, depending on your need. Yeah, and I think um, when you're talking about good, better, and best, um, there's a couple of different metrics that you could use to measure that. Of course, we probably all think of money as being you know, the tiered system, but there's also other factors in consideration. Oftentimes, we'll have um, systems or improvements that we request for outside guests or participants. And sometimes it's not about the price of the kit that we're asking them to get, but instead about how fast they can get it. So something that, that's uh, readily available that they could go and pick up uh, in time for a shoot that we're having with them, or perhaps something that they could Amazon um, one day to be able to have in and for uh, for a setup. So we, th- we think about, you know, quality, but also something that is that you could use. It's fairly plug and play. So having a good plug in um, webcam, a USB webcam is something that is obviously going to take less time to walk a, a client through to, to set up than if you're doing something that's a lot more elaborate or, or something more with the audio setup. So you could also go into a, uh, you know, quick, you know, what, as far as your lead time, you know, categorize different things that we would have for, for setups. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, I know it's, it's my own question. I'm not really answering myself, but, um, uh, to add on to what Josh was just saying, the, the one thing that I think that, uh, seems to fall down, uh, on a zoom call is the audio. It's like the first thing we look at. So I would say that whatever system, good, better, or best that you get, uh, concentrate first on the audio quality uh, because uh, a decent sounding mic will get you into the ballpark. A bad sounding mic, which most people have, really throws off your meeting. It's, it's very hard to listen to bad audio. It's much easier to look at video. It isn't quite there, but uh, audio is a good place to start. Good point. Go ahead, guys. Yeah, I wasn't going to show this, but I will because uh, I was in a meeting yesterday and I was impressed with how good it's looking. But we've made this product. This is if you want to drop 50,000 bucks, this is what it looks like. This is the one button studio, which has turned into more than one button. But the original one button is down there in the bottom left. So that 24 inch prompter that we've all dreamed of, I think Mark Giuliani has one, is here. Zoom runs on the computer on the left. This is a green screen composite with the Ultimat. And uh, this is a Wacom. A 20-inch Cintiq with an iPhone here. We're running Mimo Live as the controller. So we've built this. Uh, this is something that we've been working on for seven years now, and it's finally coming to fruition that it uh, works with Zoom. And uh, this is our custom console that we just had built. And then a uh, like a coach or somebody that's doing telestration, they can plug in their own laptop and run uh, plays and things through that, and it'll pop up behind them, and they can change if they want to have themselves in it or not. But yeah, this is a pretty cool system that we've developed. It's got a BGH-1 or optional red Komodo camera. So if you want to, and then the aperture lights are in the top left and the audio is Sheps or uh, Sennheiser, your choice. So pretty high-end system for uh, those. We're trying to get them, almost all of them have been installed in libraries. We sold a hundred of them so far that have gone into libraries, universities and uh, public libraries. So hopefully these for people that don't have 50 grand to drop will wind up in libraries across the world and people can just go in and use Zoom or uh, do their webinars or do the recordings in these types of rooms. Or um, if they need to do a hit, this will be an insert studio as well. So things to look at, teleprompter, uh, camera, good audio, possible telestration. So 
making use of a good kit and I'll put a link in the chat. Yeah. Thanks for sharing uh, guy. And it really shows too, that um, beyond just the basics of camera and mic, there's lots of supporting equipment that can make things pretty, uh, pretty streamlined for your participants. You know, uh, if they've got wires routed around or, you know, um, how they have things set up or whether they're sitting or standing or having a clean space, does make a big difference as far as uh, people's presentation of just having to think about, you know, doing things. Often, I think a lot of times we think about ourselves when we're setting up our uh, our system for us, but setting up things for other people, we can f- let them focus on just a presentation and, you know, set their gear up and be able to hear and see them. Let's go to our next question. From John Filer in Greenfield, Massachusetts, John asked, My makerspace is hosting a 13 to 7-year-old teen open hack, Make Night Soon. Yes, Make Night Soon. Any recommendations on kits or activities for kids to walk up to with limited instruction? Go ahead, Sky. I had the great joy of participating with Science Olympiad with my children in uh, both middle school and high school and watching them compete in different activities of science was a a great uh, excitement. And then they also went into the robotics with the first robotics competitions and did quite well with that. But it it did a a sports-like thing in a science environment. And so, again, I don't have recommendations of things to build, but you might reach out to your local school, your STEM uh, teacher in in a middle school or a high school area and uh, invite them to participate because they could potentially bring in some of their robotics machines or their their competitive uh, things that they're building. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Really cool question, John. And I did a cursory um, look in my local area about the, the maker spaces that might be available, and there's nothing really convenient that's that's close for me. But um, yeah, I'm a little 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 jealous about that. Thanks for the question. Let's go to our next question. Jesse Kester is up next from Glendale, asking, "I'm looking to purchase a MacBook Pro, and I'm wondering if anyone on the panel has compared the M1 Pro, the M1 Max, and M2." Also, big ups to Apple for moving their chip development in-house and not outsourcing confusing chip classes. So they could use confusing chip models. Okay, uh, go ahead, Mark. I think it's still a little confusing, but I'll try and answer this question. I haven't been able to compare the M2, but the availability of the M2 is on the smaller MacBook Pro and the Mac Air, so you're limited to your input-output on that when you want to use the M2. Uh, when you get to the 14-inch and the 16-inch MacBook Pros, the 14-inch gives you the option of the M1 Pro, and the 16-inch gives you the option of the M1 Pro or the M1 Max. Uh, both the 14 and the 16, I believe, have the same input-output settings <clears throat> with the power on the left and the HDMI on the right. Yeah, and I, I think um, a lot of it's what optimizations you're getting with that second class of chip. Um, a lot of times people are looking at that instead of the actual overall horsepower. I, I noticed, um, Jesse, you didn't stipulate the the end-use application that you're using, so that might um, factor into it as much as just a general uh, general GPU uh, workload. Let's go to our next question. 
Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California. What is a good solution for lower thirds if your graphics operator on a live show needs to work remotely? Or does it even matter so long as they can log into the network? Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, Gordon, um, I would recommend SPX Graphics. Um, they just announced a Zoom uh, plugin. And uh, it works entirely um, through uh, a web browser. And, you know, a lot of us, myself especially, come from an era where to do graphics, you had a box and you had a key out and a fill out. And you patched it into your switcher and that's just the way it worked. And that makes sense to me. But um, SPX is really cool because it, what it what it does is it creates an HTML feed, and some uh, uh, switching devices like vMix and OBS and others can actually read the key fill and the key source. It pulls the alpha channel essentially out of the HTML feed. I don't know exactly how it works, but it does, and you can actually patch just. You can just paste a URL into your switcher and say, get the graphics from here. So somebody could be literally anywhere in the world generating graphics um, and feeding them into your show. I say all that, um, ironically, when uh, we did Predo's rocket launch back in March of last year, uh, Tuomo, the creator of SPX Graphics, actually came from Finland to join us. Although he could have stayed at home and done it all remotely, I think the excitement of being on site on the lake bed for the whole launch thing uh, got the best of him, and uh, it was great to meet Tuomo. Yeah, that's a fantastic option there, and I believe the browser source can do that in OBS or Mimo Live, et cetera. And is that... Um is Tomo's uh, Zoom add-on out? I had heard but that it was coming. Uh, it said it was uh, it? announced. Sorry, it was announced November 9th, it says on the website. But but the fact that it does it um, really kind of blows my mind. Because again, I want to see those cables. I want to take those cables and I want to plug those cables into the back of my switcher. And then I know that that image is there. But this is literally, I mean, it's the future. You just paste in the URL, and you insert the key, and it works. It's super cool. Yeah, I can vouch for for SPX graphics. Uh, we use that on the show. So as you see, the lower thirds, that's our SPX that we're using, and the graphics looks fantastic. So great job. Let's go to our next question. From Justin James in Phoenix, Arizona, for remote access to Windows and Macs, even on the same network, what do you use? I've tried both VNC Server and Jump Desktop, but wondering what the panel does. Go ahead, Seth. Yeah, so over a local network or when connected over a VPN on the Mac side, I'm a big fan of Apple Remote Desktop. Uh, it's a nice, simple way to to manage a, a whole fleet of Macs uh, over that local network. On the Windows side, yeah, VNC is still very much a thing. Uh, I tend to be a really big fan of keeping things on the local network or VPN. I don't tend to like a lot of the cloud-based um, remote uh, control solutions. If you do have to venture into that, uh, I've had a lot of success with uh, Splashtop, uh, Splashtop Desktop. Uh, the big got you 
on the media production front, especially, is that you need something that engages the GPU uh, and also doesn't take over the session uh, if you've already got something open. Uh, otherwise, you'll you know you'll keep the system utilization uh, to a minimum as well as uh, not potentially interrupt a live show, which has happened to me. Nice, Serge. Uh- if I don't use the native solution of DSOS, let's say um, Windows, I will re- use a remote desktop protocol that it's already included there, or uh, macOS, I will use uh, screen uh, sharing. I tend to use Parsec or the uh, Acronis Cyber Protect Connect. Acronis Cyber Protect is a project that I I work uh, daily on uh, for my daily job, and that's that's why I'm using it for the, this remote access protocol. But Parsec is another solution that many people here are, are using, and it's capable of doing very fast uh, video and being able to watch a 60 frame per second remotely. It's very nice. Good guy. Yeah, another vote for Parsec, um, Apple Remote Desktop. But the reason why we use some something like Parsec is because of the higher frame rates and the, the better color and then the, the ability of other users to be logged in at the same time. You got to be super careful with this because um, somebody can start moving your mouse while you're in the session, whereas some of the other ones like RDP, Microsoft RDP will only allow that one person to be in there at a time and it's their session. So I use a lot of RDP, Microsoft RDP, just uh, because it's simple, easy to use. But I do notice that the color and the tearing is very apparent once you're used to Parsec or even nice DCV. So we do a lot of stuff in AWS and nice DCV is what we've settled on for the multi-monitor support. So that's the other part. Do you want multi-monitor or do you want USB control? So some of these uh, RDP type uh, applications will allow you to use uh, local uh, devices like a stream deck or a microphone, and it could be up in the, in the cloud. Uh, from a, uh, an assist uh point of view at the office, we use Zoho Assist. So we have people that are work work from home. We've in the past we've used TeamViewer. Uh, and again, the, the, the big thing is just uh, how simple do you want it to be? Because uh, you can use for free, just Google. Uh, Google has a, an RDP uh, solution as well. So if you're just trying to do simple stuff, it's it's really uh, the FIPS, uh, the frames per second as you're moving a mouse across the screen can be a, uh, something that makes it feel like you're you're definitely remoting in and not uh, not native. So like Teradici and Parsec, they feel like you're there. They feel like you are using the workstation. In fact, people will edit, resolve, fusion, that kind of thing with uh, Teradici and Parsec. So it just depends on what level that you want to be at. All right, next question. John Feiler from Greenfield, Massachusetts asking, has anyone played with some of these AI tools as a social game-like activity? John. Yeah, our most frequent use of ChatGPT at home is to write stories, whether it's a silly story uh, between me and my wife or bedtime story for the kids. They're the perfect length of time, and they have a nice little story structure, so it's great use of the, that tool. Guys, guy? To, to Chris's point, is, is the new technology going to change us, or are we going to you know use it? And so I, I looked up on Wikipedia, because it's available, and I said, what is the term of anthropology and it came up with there out one of the concepts is social anthropology studies of patterns and behaviors while cultural anthropology is study of cultural meaning and including norms and values and i bring that as a concept to this conversation because i'm watching on discord which is a again a tool i'm still learning how to use but that's where mid journey is and inside of that 
is this thing called daily theme. So to your question of, is it uh, a game? Well, it's, I'm watching 7 million people play together around a central topic of um, a daily theme and what they're bringing to the cultural uh, creativity is becoming the norm very quickly. So that's, um, that's the observation I'm seeing is um, AI is, is involving and engaging creative minds around the world and giving them tools that they didn't have before. So from an anthropological point of view, it's, it's changing us. Let's go to our next question. Uh, next question is coming in from Bob Sturdivant in San Antonio. Has anyone heard of a AI that might be the reverse of mid-journey? Picture to text, thinking it could be used for visually impaired. Hmm. Dave? Uh, I think you're muted, Dave. Do not know how that happened. Anyway, um, I've been listening to Guy Cocker in the last few days talk about what he saw at CES and these cameras that can follow people around. And I, I think if they're able to identify subjects and items in a picture, uh, they can probably add it together and figure out whether something's in the foreground or the background and whether something is in motion or animated or whether it's just sitting quietly. And then it could describe it for you. Um, I think uh, image description, of course, even if you did it in real time as a person, if I were to start describing what I see on John Snyder's shelf behind him and the color of things and the lamps and everything in the background, it would take me a very long time to put it into words. So I think a, a cogent description or a, a terse description is probably sufficient for people who need to just get a sense of what's in the frame and what's being seen. Um, distinguishing left and right, uh, distinguishing forward and back uh, or foreground and background is probably a key to the artificial intelligence training. Uh, right now, we're training most artificial intelligence or machine learning with a, a corpus of uh, already existing data and then having it be smart enough to choose from that data to create uh, novel results. Uh, pictures are a whole different thing. And of course, moving pictures are even more difficult. So the sense of it for me is that, yeah, you could probably get a picture to text description, but it would take a very long time to get just one picture. And that would actually slow down the process. Now, I know people who are visually impaired actually learn to hear a text description rather quickly. They read emails at five times speed and that sort of stuff in their ears. So you can train a person to, to listen to a fast description. But I think for a general use, um, we're still a little far away from what it is that's probably important in a picture, how to determine that. And that's the machine learning we're waiting for, is they can determine what the prominent issue in a, in a whole picture is. Um, you know, anyone who's been to an art gallery and looks at a, a Monet or something uh, can stare at it for a very long time and discover a whole lot of things in it that the artist has uh, formed an impression around. But which is the most prominent part of the message? Uh, that's what our brains do with pattern recognition. So my sense is that it, it would be useful in a general sense uh, for perhaps um, aiding people in being able to tell uh, street signs and uh, um, 
commercial signs or other indicators of concern that they need to have for navigating or, or being able to know what's going on. But for just even a static image, it's quite a challenge. Go ahead, Harshit. So I think the terms that we're using are what confuses us right now with what we're trying to learn. Um, augmentation is what would work the best for, let's say, someone that is vision, vision impaired. And VR would help somebody that might be hearing impaired because they're going to virtualize or they're going to see the image, right? So when we take both of these and we call it XR and we call it AI, well, what is AI? AI is built up off of bunch of machine learning from different aspects and it takes different uh, inputs and then puts out outputs so when we look at augmentation with mid-journey and such the pictures are there they're creative they're fine but what is it doing it's actually just drawing vector art probably right and how can that same vector art become enthusiastic to the end user that might not have any vision so that becomes auditory so learning something auditory might become where it depends if a human does it or it depends if a text-to-speech engine does it. Uh, Alex has mentioned with his uh, reading of audiobooks, he likes the text-to-speech engines. And that doesn't offer any of these inflections that a human might offer. So when we look at AI, the TTS engines are all available. We could really take Midjourney or, or even like a ChatGPT and make a talk. We just add a, a voice to it, right? But what about the inputs and outputs? Is it really helping us or are we wasting time? Because to me, some of this stuff is also driven by social media where we just want to keep going at, you know, certain spurts of ideas like Facebook did. And then now we're done with it. We're now onto Twitter. We're okay. We're done with it. Now we're on to, so we're always getting into new ideas, but how are we really benefiting the end user at the end of the day? Are we really involving them in the picture making? Is that what's so fun about it? Or is it that this thing could really make a presentation for you, do it in five minutes, and you could be blind and present it to your workplace, and it looks just as good as any other person. So it's all about bringing them, including them, and making it even. All right, thanks. All right, let's go to our next question. Next one in from Paul Pruskowski from Gainesville, Florida. I'm building a custom rack-mounted device and need to create square holes on the faceplate. What is the best way to get a professional result or any links to companies who do this well? Go ahead, John. Especially if you live in, agri in an agricultural community, you might see if there's a small machine shop in your community. And Mark. So I found, and let's see if this shows up right. I found an adapter that converts the traditional threads in a rack to square holes. Oh, that's the wrong picture. But they make something very similar that converts it to a square hole. All right, let's go to our next question. John Filer from Greenfield, Massachusetts, asking, I haven't seen anyone with the Fenwick lower third in a while. Does the panel still use them in the pre-show? It would be nice to cover that whole entry check and workflow during education hour. Go ahead, Mitchell. I still lovingly use mine. I have it up right now. Um, it is an original Fenwick uh, lower third, and um, it will continue as long as this particular uh, group of uh, equipment works together. So we're alive and well. Let's go to our final question. Final question from Paul Terry Wallace asking, 
Guy, tell us tech advice that you want the most but can't get. Wow, this one just came at me out of nowhere. Um, geez, I don't know. A carrier, I guess? Uh, like one of those big naval military ships? If I could have anything, I think I want one of those. <laughs> Good, Serge. The iPhone 15? <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you, uh, producers, for all of your questions. Uh, but the show's not over. We're going to go ahead and uh, make a transition into our education hour. And Dave, uh, what do we have? Today, we're going to take a closer look at the implications for education and teaching in general with the emergence of natural language processing tools for text, images, and 3D objects. Stay with us through the little break while we prepare our program and settle our panelists in their chairs. Education Hour starts in just a little while. Ooh, this is new for me. Okay, well, we'll start with um, Harshid. Um, you've sounded good in the previous. We'll do a sound check okay. for you. So I could just show an example how a sound check would be. Harshid Trivedi coming in with SE Electronics V7 microphone, going into an SSL2 and then Windows and a Brio webcam. That's terrific. Uh, we're going to go to Guy Cochran and then Sky. I had to go look up what a combat information center was called. Uh, back up on that previous question, uh, my father was on an aircraft carrier. That's why that came to mind all of a sudden. Uh, so coming in with this uh, DPA 4066 on our roadcaster, and it looks like I'm hitting those levels. Sure, a little low, but that's okay. You're a quiet speaker. Uh, we'll go to Sky Gleason and then John Snyder. Continuing the conversation, haven't changed anything, moved anything, touched anything. So and here I am chatting It's the same for you. Thank yep, you. That's good. John Snyder. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada, Stellar X2 to my Behringer Flow 8. All right. Um, John Prado can do it if he's still around. He had his, oh, he's not, the dog is taking over over there. Okay. And I don't see Tony Mobley yet. So we'll finish up with Chris Clark as soon as he comes on stage. You want me to go while you're waiting? Yeah, you can go ahead. Okay. Mark Giuliani, hi, PR40 into a Mix Pre 3 that goes into a PC and out to Zoom. Oh my gosh, it worked the first time. It works beautifully, yes. I don't know what your previous issues have been the last few days, but you've you've solved it. Okay. Shaved his beard. <laughs> That's what went wrong. Three yes. ounces lighter. I feel three <laughs> ounces lighter. You are. Or, I can tell it. You just you're just glowing. Yes. Yeah. There's Chris. Uh, Chris, we're just doing a little mic check here so you can unmute and uh, give us a walkthrough in your mic and we'll see how loud you are. Good morning from Tempe, Arizona. I'm speaking into a new Behringer Bigfoot mic that sits on my desk right here and 
-hmm. was recently on sale. I was alerted for $30 or less, and it seems to work. Yeah, and it seems to sound great today. So that's Comforting green light. Yeah. John Preto, they're asking us to redo the voice check. So if you want to unmute, we'll take your test. Good morning, friends. This is John Preto on a How PR40 and Claret 2 Pre with the original sound off. There we go. Everybody's in the ballpark here. Um, I don't believe Chris has comms in his ear. Yeah. And and Tony is notorious for not having comms in his ears too. So you might want to yeah check to see if he's hearing us. Microphone that goes into Zoom H six. Zoom H6 goes into the M1 Mac Mini, where Audio Hijack and Loopback are doing their thing. Sounds good, Tony. We're about 20 seconds away. Good morning and afternoon and evening to whoever's out there with us today. Uh, We're in the education hour portion of Saturday. And uh, just a little note here that um, there's going to be some uh, small changes to education hour in the next week or two. And we're just going to be experimenting with um, two hours of education hour. So look for that in the future. And uh, there'll be uh, the usual pattern of uh, the first hour being questions and answers of a technical nature. And again, the second hour being the feature subject uh, that everyone will be discussing as a group. And producers might be able to put uh, all kinds of questions in that they might normally do on a weekday, come in on a Saturday uh, when it's convenient for you. And we'll, we'll take up those questions with the panel that we have. Today, we've got a pretty good panel, Uh, a lot of people that uh, are with us regularly, but also a couple of new faces. Uh, Guy Cochran's with us today, so it's good to see another face in the the, uh, gallery today. Um, During the past week or so, people have been posting on our Discord, uh, the Education Discord, um, links to things that are AI interesting. And uh, today, we thought we might pursue some of those and see what people's impressions are of some of these AI uh, events and uh, AI tools that are coming out. Uh, as well, there's been indications that some of these um, uh, chatbot and uh, visual uh, design things are being integrated into other apps. And so uh, we're going to open the discussion up between our panel here at first to see if they've got some impressions of some of the things I'm going to list here. And uh, while we're doing that, we certainly welcome your questions on Mukana, and we'll take time for all those questions as they come in and uh, try and get your impressions as well from our producers. Uh, earlier, uh, Aaron 
put in um, in the Discord Education General section uh, a fellow named Mr. Carr who did a little Instagram link on his um, uh, feed uh, of various subjects. Mr. Carr covers a lot of different subjects, but he had a short piece talking about Jet chat GPT and uh, it uh, determining his experiment was to put in different levels of um, uh, age group or educational level uh, PhD down to kindergarten and just see if chat GPT would change the way it uses phrases and grammar and it was an interesting uh, little experiment uh, and this would be kind of what is going on right now with a lot of chat and uh, the uh, image stuff, uh, the uh, my journey and uh, um, is it my journey? Yeah. Ed. Um, the experiments that are being done are kind of like road testing. Uh, people trying out the car and giving it a shot and seeing where various people are learning the processes that attach to this and the and the kind of uh, they're learning what the limits are, I suppose. And that's an interesting thing to be going after. Um, there's an audiobook announcement from Apple that was uh, pointed out, and uh, that looks like something that they're looking into for uh, providing a voice that would read your stuff uh, in your audiobooks. And the natural language uh, processing in there is rather interesting in that it has more inflection and pauses and emphasis that sounds more like a natural voice. Um, there was an article on the risks of AI in education uh, from uh, Dr. Philip Hardman. He has a substack, and in it he uh, looks at learning design, which is uh, a profession of where we design learning and learning materials or content for learning, and how people are uh, aware of some of the influences in, in how you design something to be used in a learning situation. And uh, he pointed out uh, three particular things, and then I'll ask the panel what they think of some of these things. Um, he points out that in a design for education, the risk in AI is that it will use language and models to automate and accelerate uh, research process and help anyone be an expert in anything quickly. That's a good thing. Uh, it'll do uh, explain papers. Uh, it can do specialized papers and highlight confusing text and get an explanation of what that text might be. And in ChatGPT, it can generate information about any topic and then respond to your questions about it. And that's one of the features in ChatGPT is that it understands that you may be in a conversation with it and that it'll remember what you inputted before and then compare that with what you're asking now and modify the response accordingly. So I'll just stop at that point because I've got some more. There's ChatGPT in education and cheating using ChatGPT. But I was going to go to my group here and just see if anybody had any responses to some of those things. We'll start with uh, Sky Gleason and then go to John. I'm fascinated with this new tool, but I'm realizing the definition of a sommelier is somebody that has spent hundreds of hours understanding and learning the nuances of the dirt and the and the seeds and the origin of the vine and and the process of the wine the barista that can tell me about where the coffee beans were made and and what the economic effect it had on the on the community that grew it and and but then also the nuances of is it at what altitude in what atmosphere and when you stated ai is going to make me an expert on something it it, it cheats me from the experience of the growth that it took me to understand in a deep meaning like the sommelier or the barista of 
the the depth. Now, we talked about the consumer attitude earlier. I don't care. And that's why I'm here to be a part of this conversation to learn how to ask better questions. So I'm very interested from Chris's point of view is in the learning process. How do we ask better questions? And what is this new tool allowing us to do versus the tsunami of of overwhelming cool images that keep coming at me and distracting me, you know, by the second. John Snyder. Uh, quick correction. Dr. Philippa Hardman is a she, um, but that's all right. <laughs> um, she's a great follow on LinkedIn as well. Uh, she's a learning scientist. What I was thinking is when we're thinking about AI, it's become really the forefront of the conversation in the last few weeks with these AI generation tools like the mid journeys dollies for art or visuals as well as chat gpt for text and i suspect that where we'll actually see ai used more frequently is in the background of things especially in um, research-based tools like improving google search results google instead of just offering the most popular websites or the most linked to websites really being able to distill and um, identify trends and patterns in websites to give you what your intention is rather than just what you typed in. And in the call center industry, we see where AI is going is it's a lot of um, voice phone trees or IVRs is the technical term. Um, so far, you have to program every little bit in there. So if you want, if you think your users want a certain destination, you have to figure out what they're going to ask and program it in and the machine can't figure it out. AI is allowing us to now start seeing what are the most common trends and intents people have so we can have the users guide us in building out the phone trees they want instead of us just assuming what they want and trying to force them down the path that we expect them to take. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an interesting take on it, is, is being an aid to the process rather than a, a generator of the content. Tony? I was a little bit slow in trying to pulled this up for you guys what i was trying to show you uh curiously um i've been playing around with it and i actually asked i asked the ai to create a sermon um just to see what it would look like and i was so very much surprised so i'm going to see if i can share it with you if that's okay. Is it a long sermon? No, it's it's not a long <laughs> sermon. Um, let's see. And I'm trying to, to share this in a different format. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go ahead and do that, but I, I what what I will say is that I asked the uh, AI to create a sermon about blind Bartimaeus, which I'm going to be speaking on tomorrow. And so I wanted to see what the AI would do. And I have to say that it is very interesting what the AI created. Um, it is, it is not a sermon that I would preach, but it is a sound, valid sermon that I think that um, people would enjoy. So um, it was very interesting. Uh, this was not the first time that I did that. I also did one 
on faith. And it was very interesting. Um, so that is that is something those who are um, ministers, it can give you a, a sort of uh, bare bones kind of ideas about some of the things that you might be thinking about when you're speaking. And sometimes it will offer thoughts that you may not have thought about. Hmm. It never occurred to me that it might be able to take something like a sermon and assemble it together. That's interesting. Harshid? I wanted to take a point from your first, uh, the one about uh, the audiobooks and such. Um, <clears throat> a lot of these technologies have been available. So like if you have Google, if you just say read it out loud to your assistant and you have article up, it should go ahead and read it in a much more clear voice. And it takes almost that uh, the duplex, which they have uh, sunsetted the duplex uh, on the Google side. But regardless of what they bring in or they, do, they take out, they're still keeping the technology going in some fashion or way. If you look at Amazon, for example, they also have a TTS engine that they use, uh, mostly that they use it in the audio description for uh, TV shows, movies, and the prime uh, outlet. So when we look at the elements that they've tested, they asked the audience, hey, what do you think if we put in this automated voice and it's you know giving you a audio description of a movie well in a movie the inflections go away and it kind of messes up the movie because you have this monotone thing just cars going cars moving and that doesn't really help if there's action going on and the whole tone of the the show is different so when we look at what we have already the we have to look at it as its little pieces and the little piece as a whole is what AI is. So machine learning has always been happening. I have an application on my phone called Google Lookout. Uh, on the app, Apple ecosystem, you have an app called Seeing AI. It does the same thing. It does what uh, some of the questions I've stated today where you're looking at a signage and you're trying to read that sign. It's going to take that artificial intelligence of, okay, I see that there's OCR. Let me take that text. And then it's going to spit it to its engine and it's going to give you an output of, hey, the sign says Main Street. I think that's where you want to go, right? And you kind of move on along with, with what it gives you as output. So, you know, we just have to teach appropriate technology uh, behavior to our technology. So if we're just going to play around with AI and mix it up with, it's going to figure that that's how humans are. If we're going to teach it the right way of living and doing things, it's going to give us appropriate, adequate information. Excellent points. John Prado. Watching, been watching AI for a long time and very, very closely now. And DeepMind, which uh, which Google acquired long, long time ago. I think they're twelve years old. They were founded. They were founded in two thousand and ten. I think they got acquired like in fifteen or sixteen. And and then Microsoft now is the major investor behind uh, OpenAI. Uh, they just made another announcement this week. They're putting another $10 billion loan in, and they're going to get that money back, but then they'll continue to own 49% of the company. And so what's going to happen is you're going to see AI, the back ends, integrate into the tools that you use on a daily basis. So it's going to be integrated into all the Microsoft apps. It will be It will be integrated into Bing. They'll get another chance to, to compete with Google, and then Google will soon... Um, they'll soon start developing and 
they're purposely going very, very slow uh, because they don't, they want to be very, very careful on the show social unrest. If they unleashed all this technology at the full capability, the social unrest would go way, way up. And they're being very, very uh, careful in, in how they deploy these tech, technologies moving forward. But this is spectacular stuff. Super interested to hear you guys, the educators, talk about this because at what point do we do we rely on educators anymore and just use the AIs? Uh, because most of the kids now are are going to YouTube to learn everything these days, and AI is only going to get better and better and better. So, what's that say for for educate ed- educators in the long run? I don't know. I'm super interested to, to know your guys' thoughts. All right, let's get some of those thoughts, uh, Mark Giuliani. So I think John hit the nail on the head right here. What is the what are the educators of the future going to do? And if you start to think a little bit about Chat GPT, is it really artificial intelligence, or is it just massive indexing of human knowledge? And at some point in time, that can become a weapon. So how do we keep the enemy, whoever that might be, from putting in false data into these algorithms? And, you know, changing how humans think. I think we need the teachers to teach us how to do research on the research to make sure what we're getting is truly the truth. That's a key question here in terms of machine learning. And um, one of the articles that was posted in Discord is a deep dive into, it's an MIT technology review called Opting Out of Stable Diffusion. But it goes deep into uh, the stability of AI and the machine learning mechanism that was built up over 20 years is for the machine to take its feedback from its output and then add that to its process. So that's like uh, a one-year-old experimenting with, you know, a ball or or a stick or something and learning about the stick from its use. And then it adds that to its corpus. And each of these iterations, it gets a little bit smarter and a little bit smarter. And uh, in discussing this with my wife, I, she didn't read the thing, but I did. Uh, it seems that there's a currently a limit to how much this can expand before it starts to bog down. And I thought uh, in terms of, say, a three-year-old, uh, when they get frustrated in learning, they'll throw a tantrum or they'll refuse or start resisting. And it, this is not to uh, anthropomorphize uh, machine learning, but it is to say that machine learning will follow a path itself of being able to approach, uh, respond, and then get feedback and then integrate. And that whole process of its own learning is something we have to learn more about as a society because now we're all looking at it as the robot lords right and john and i have surrendered to that so that's okay but into the sense that this is a a process that is going to be embedded which we call intelligence although jared lanier calls it artificial ignorance uh it is a process and then more we understand the process and as you just mentioned mark guiding it by feeding it the good responses and not reacting to it angrily, giving it nasty remarks or asking it to do things that are unsavory is going to show the machine, as Harshita said, who we want to be and how human we want to be. Uh, and I, I recommend everyone give that little, little, it's quite a long article because it's a, a paper written by, I think, 20 people. Uh, but it looks at that and uh, it's, 
it's whether or not uh, we're being trained or it's training us and whether we're going to learn to be actively involved in training the machine that we want to make use of in the educational process. I think I had John Snyder on the list here. Yeah. Yeah, it was just making me think this conversation so far. As these tools get incorporated into tools like your office products, um, they're going to become like a calculator as for most of us today. Most of us don't need to regularly do long division. But in school, we were all taught the process of long division and not allowed to use calculators. And I suspect we'll end up somewhere along the same lines when we're thinking of educating students. Somewhere around middle school or high school, we'll start integrating the use of these tools, hopefully after explaining the appropriate way to write sentences or format a paper and that sort of thing. Um, Because at some point, we need to understand the fundamentals to know whether or not something's valuable. Go ahead, Sky. I remember when Microsoft put a thesaurus inside of Word, and it was basically a marketing ploy because they needed to continue to add to their value proposition, correct? But I asked people, so how often do you use a thesaurus? And I was like, I can barely say the word, let alone use it. So consequently, my Grammarly that I depend on that is now completely embedded in all of my tools that I, again, use the system of typing, how quaint, is, is the, the, again, a type of AI that's useful and helping me communicate and connect in structure of a process of using a language. And I still don't know what a participle is. Maybe we'll get John to show you what a participle is. Uh, Tony Mobley. Yeah, I just wanted to come back and just say that my my reasoning for using the AI for the uh, for the sermon is the same way in which I would use. I have tons and tons of uh, theological dictionaries and commentaries, and those. <laughs> I, I think that in some ways that approach to uh, ministry may, in fact, be the age of the dinosaur in that, you know, I have a theological dictionary of um, the Bible. I have a New Testament Greek um, commentary, and these are like 10 volumes, 15 volumes, eight volumes, tons and tons and tons of books. And the AI has the ability to pull all of those resources and make those in a, in a very uh, sample, a smaller sample size, whereas you wouldn't have to invest as much in going to all of the, the resources that I still have here uh, in, in books. So I just wanted to point that out. Thank you, Tony. Guy, you're next. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a coworker who lives on uh, Woodby Island, which is just right off the right off the coast uh, from our office. And uh, looking over there, I was like, "Why? Why do you live over there?" It's it's like you have to take a ferry to work every day. And he said, uh, "Because of the schools." And I was like, "Well, I, w- I went to school on Woodby Island. They're not that they're not nothing special." And he goes, "No, no. There's a there's a Waldorf school there." And I was like, "Tell me more. What's a what's a Waldorf school?" What, and he got to explaining about the Steiner method of teaching and 
how in the future um, there might be just a lot of robots doing things and uh, what will pay off is creativity, uh, relationships, math skills, practical skills, those things that humans can do. And so uh, some of us might want to look into that method of teaching. I know just to wrap it back to education, uh, it's it's really interesting how they let kids play in the rain and go be in nature and not just stuck memorizing things. So something to really think about as we're talking about AI and humans in the future. It's even a, a consideration for um, augmented reality is that that's a teachable moment and the augmented reality could just add something to your experience. You're in the woods and it's telling you what that bird is or what that tree is. And if you ask the glasses to identify what you don't recognize, uh, it can be a learning moment at the moment you're ready to learn it. So yes, that's helpful. I'm going to close with Sky and we'll move on to some questions. Just real quick, uh, the, the repository of information and knowledge that's being deconstructed both in visual imagery as well as, you know, written text is what I'm seeing AI is recalibrating and recom, you know, uh, rearranging for us. And Guy, to your, your point, um, uh, our, our friend, uh, Graham Kerr went to a Walden. I was introduced to that school system then 40, 70 years ago. So it's been around a long time of the creative mind. And what I'm realizing, even in the, the mid journey experience is I am also having to limit the question because it's giving me 12 fingers, one, one hand. And so you're, you're, you're training it. But when I start giving a style of say Monet or a style of uh, pointillism, it's knowledge that I had in asking a better question. So again, it's, it's, a, I love Tony's comment about, yeah, he'd reach to his, you know, his reference books that would, somebody had to collate and curate and, and then put together. And this is, we're just doing a lot, seemingly a lot faster. It's time to go to some of these questions that are accumulating. So John, why don't you start us off with the first one? Our first question comes from Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington. Guy Cochran, can you share what AI you saw at CES and how it's being used now and what's coming? Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, for those of you that don't know what CES is, it's a consumer electronics show. Typically in the past, it's been upwards of 180,000 people. It's the largest trade show in the world. This year, we saw about 115,000. And some of the things that I saw were things that I saw in 2020, um, but they've just gotten better in regards to AI and what we'll call um, computer vision. So it's just gotten way faster. So here, and, and it's probably in a lot of other states, when a police officer pulls up by you in their car, sometimes you'll see them park kind of weird next to you. And it's because they're scanning your license plate. So there's there's technologies that are happening all around us and we don't even know. And it's so fast. Like, so in 2020, when I was walking down the aisle at the JD Powers booth, they had this huge screen. It's been like an 85, 90 inch screen, just massive. And it was showing us attendees walking down the aisle. And it was like male, uh, female, you know, it was just separating us that fast. And so to see something, uh, I got one of the, the videos here from CS where, uh, let me cut to this. So here's an example, let me back it up. So the bounding box is around the car, but it's got the car's speed, the type of car, the brand, the make, the model. I mean, this, this, this bananas. I used to have to do this by hand. One of my first jobs was doing this on tape. Like they wanted this company, we had to get the license plate numbers and key them in by hand. And 
it was hundreds of hours of time. And now this AI is just doing it super fast. And so getting to see things like this, where it's over time, uh, not just, uh, 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 it's just getting better, faster. And that's, that's the key to this is it's learning. So depending on the sensor, the lighting, it starts to say, okay, what do you want me to analyze and do if I see this thing? So another example uh, that we saw was, this ability for it to recognize if a factory worker had on their hard hat, their mask, and their safety vest. And so you can see here that it's red for the no hat, uh, does have the mask, does have the safety mask, and now the second person is. And the system wouldn't let the person go into this factory area without it. So there was just things like this where it, it just kind of boggles your mind as to what the future entails with this artificial intelligence being able to unlock doors and let people in certain areas. So. There's a there's a lot of cool stuff that was seen. A lot of the autonomous vehicles, uh, self driving. There was uh, we we saw this a couple of years ago too, where the pesticides could be sprayed, you know, down a field, uh, so you could target an area, and then this drone would go and spray the fields. And now they've got autonomous uh, uh, vehicles that are the size of a house that'll go and clear an entire area of dirt, just flatten it all out. It just has the GPS coordinates and you get out of its way because it's huge. I mean, we're talking $2 million piece of equipment and it's autonomous and it's just driving. So th seeing things like that in reality where you're like, that thing drives itself. And it's, you know, there's a picture of me standing next to the tire. The tire's you know, still another three feet over my head. And it, it's crazy to think that there's not a person driving that. So a lot, a lot of cool things. There was this, it was almost overwhelming. And I think on Thursday show uh, in office hours, we're going to have uh an entire CS kind of recap. So we'll learn more there. Catch that there. Yes. You've reminded me, of course, that I, I did a short stint in a uranium mine and they have those 50 ton ore trucks with the big tires and holding a camera, trying to ride on one of those things was almost impossible because they don't have any suspension. Oh, wow. <laughs> a guy driving one will have kidney trouble after 20 years. So it's one of those things that maybe it helps a person not to be in the driver's seat in the vehicle, but in a control room driving oh, it and going well into the mine and coming out and not being in danger. To so that's the other thing that yeah. they had set up was from 1,200 miles away. So you're on the trade show floor in Vegas. They had work from home, remote uh, uh, forklifts Front and loaders, dozers. Yeah. So you were drive. You got to drive them from the floor. They had cameras of the dirt, and you could scoop up the dirt and move it around. And as the gentleman was explaining what was going on, he's like, well, our operators, some of them, you know, they're at retirement age, they've just gotten beat up and they're only 50 years old, but this gives them another 10 years in that seat because they're not feeling the full brunt of the force of all that. And he said, the guys that are really good, we could bounce them from machine to machine. So while one staging, we could get our top operators working, getting more hours out of them. And I was like, what? That, that's that blows my mind that they're getting efficiencies because they can have people switch switch machines or stay in the same seat. It just changes the mm -hmm. configuration of the screen. It's just like load load Delaware. We got another one to to move. The, the future. I'm waiting is also for the Roomba for airports that can clear the snow. You know that just go out without drivers. They know that there's no plane coming and they just. You know, they'll just go out and clear the runway. They have anyway, uh, at the show. They were showing the remote control um, uh, lawnmowers, and uh, I saw a guy when I went to buy my daughter's car. Uh, he had a, a lawnmower going off, and, and so I saw it in reality. And I was like, three grand for a lawnmower?" And he says, "Yeah, it just goes all day. It's just like it's very slow, but it's getting the job done." And I joke that my room is the hardest working 
person in the house here. I mean, she <laughs> gives a report else. at the end of the day. <laughs> what if a you have the, and, yeah. yeah, certain Roombas, they'll show, they'll draw your house. So it, at the end of the session, it'll show you exactly where there was dirt and where it had to go over and over and over again. And it gives you a detailed map that you can rotate of your entire house. So there's interesting things going yeah, on. Yeah, all our houses will be mapped by AI and then they'll know how to find us when we're hiding. Uh, John Snyder. Yeah, all this talk does make me wonder, what does this mean? Like from an education perspective, we already don't emphasize the value of labor at schools. We encourage students to go to college and get higher level degrees. We don't encourage blue collar work hardly at all. And other than maintenance on AI machines, what does the future of AI mean for educating the people who otherwise might not be great knowledge workers or might not want that? Well, that's also interesting in the in the context of trying to repatriate manufacturing, that the skills and knowledge for doing the big tough stuff that China and Japan are able to do and bring it back to North America, uh, learning how to make miniature screws with the accuracy that they can do over in China is just something that maybe AI can help us train people to do and give us the kind of feedback that would get us faster into putting manufacturing back on this side of the ocean. Uh, we'll go to the next question. Our next question comes from Joe Kidd in the Bay Area, California. It seems almost trivial to train and tweak recognition algorithms driving sites like turniton.com to identify AI-generated text sourced from and trained on an amalgam of published works. How is this not almost trivial? John Prado, start us off. From a high level, it, 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 it appears to be trivial. Um, they say that data is the new oil and, and gaining access to these large data sets is, is key. And then providing a, a, a targeted attack on how that data is parsed is the key. Microsoft owns GitHub. And so they went through all the code and that's how they're able to provide the code writing capability in ChatGPT, they have another name, OpenAI has another name for it, uh, Copilot that's integrated into, into GitHub right now. But having having access to that data, a couple of important things has happened over the past five years. The data sets have been, have been gathered and Microsoft's a big part of that and so is Google. So they have these big giant data sets available to them. And then hardware finally has gotten fast enough to provide the neural networks to operate at the speed to parse these things out in real time. And I was super inquisitive at why NVIDIA's last conference was all about AI. And now it's very, very clear to me. So their whole, their whole show was about AI. Tesla's show, the first half of their whole show was all about their custom hardware that they're, that they're building. IBM has um, their efforts as well. And so you got IBM, Microsoft, you got all the normal players out there They've had gathered these giant data sets, and now they've got the hardware to run these neural network models based upon that data for queries. Terrific. John Snyder. Yeah, when I was researching this question, I went to the turn it on, turn it up, turn it in.com, sorry, website. And uh, I was shocked to see that one of the services they offer is the ability to use AI to grade your students' papers. And if teachers are going to complain about students using AI to write the papers, they oughtn't use AI to grade the papers. Yeah, a little uh, contradictory there, I guess. Eh? Sky? Listening to the office hours conversation with Mark, uh, what's his, the man that's in charge of uh, mid-journey. And to Guy's point of we now have access, but he talked, the, Mark talked about 
who has access to 48 GPUs? And consequently, that's what he's allowing and to the, the build of, of and, and access, uh, again, to John Preto's point of who, who has these GPUs and now is giving access. Uh, I don't have room for 48 computers in my even my little space, but I have a dumb terminal here that now I'm being given opportunity to pr use those processors. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating time. I, I think the computing power thing is very similar to the adoption of broadband and mobile when Wi-Fi was established and more broad. And then people saw the instant use of a phone. Up until that time, the phone was a bit slow. Looking at web on a phone was pointless. And we didn't have the kind of resolution and things that, that we needed to be able to make that work. But now with, I mean, how many GPUs are in the average M1 chip? And they're getting bigger and stronger all the time and shrinking it to impossible size. Graphic, graphics processing unit. Sorry, I, I use mm. lexicon. That's GPU. okay. No, that's all right. Next question. Our next question comes from Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington. What is the mashup of AI, gamification, and learning look like? Well, let Sky start it. I might even flip the question because, as I said, I'm trying to learn to ask better questions. And since we have the opportunity of Dr. Chris Clark here, I would maybe I want to flip the question and ask, in your career in the system of education and learning, what tools came in as the the silver bullet, the magic bullet? I'd, I'd love to hear because maybe we can learn from previous learning and, and systems of what was brought in to be the, the saving thing and what turned out with that. Do you want to take that, Chris? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Sky. I'm, I'm here as the unelected representative of uh, organic intelligence, uh, the, the old fashioned kind, the kind grew in our victory gardens back in the 50s and 60s. In any case, Sky, uh, there's in my time in education, there's been a whole series of silver bullet uh, promises made by by those who are selling the technology or the the magic curriculum that was alleged to have a research base and would kind of guarantee uh, a general solution to the challenge of teaching people different than ourselves and it's a kind of an empty promise. It's a, it's a search for the Holy Grail that doesn't exist, which is one, one system, one curriculum, one technology that's going to be great for everyone. Every context, in my experience, is, is different enough that a single solution um, is never going to be uh, appropriate and as effective as it was during the research that might have been done to to document its effectiveness. Um, so we saw it, of course, with uh, introduction of the early computers, the early uh, microcomputers into schools and classrooms, Apple and IBM, among others gave away machines to schools and school districts to kind of prime the pump and um, a lot of hype 
accompanied that. Uh, but as as those of us who are uh, almost as old as I am remember, um, the rap a year later was that these these computers sat in closets because the teachers hadn't been prepared to know how to make good use of them, to, to complement what they were already teaching. And, of course, there are many limitations. There wasn't Internet access available, and uh, there wasn't a, a suite of programs that were actually aligned with uh, curriculum and objectives in the school. So, And there's a, a bit of technophobia among the, the teaching force at that time, and and perhaps even today. Um, so there, there is a peak of excitement uh, and promotion. There are some early adopters who, who get featured, people like ourselves, who learned how to do, learned how to hook up a, a dot matrix printer in our basement that was the size and weight of an engine block and uh, figure out how to draw a rainbow in basic programming. And that was wonderful. I'm speaking from direct experience with that, but it wasn't available, actually actionable by teachers in general. And I think we're in the same part of the cycle with AI. Uh, it's exciting. It's got a lot of potential. There are people who are seeing uh, possible shadow sides of AI in terms of privacy, in terms of um, applicability, in terms of it it uh, taking over, threatening um, our ability to keep doing things the way we're used to doing them. There's a great um, worship of familiarity in the human heart. <laughs> we love to keep doing things the way We've learned to do them, especially when we've reached a, a point of uh, mastery and uh, our our work and our our gift to the world is based on the way we've done things for 20 years. And now if something comes along that threatens that or threatens to supplant our expertise, uh, it's not well received. We get busy. Uh, criticizing it or being defensive about it. And so I think we're in that stage of the, of the introduction of, or the broad, the broader availability of AI uh, programs um, that some people are very enthused about it. The early adopters want to dig into it and, and uh, imagine how it could make their work, their work more effective and, and, uh, amplify what they're already good at. And uh, many others are nervous about um, being asked to uh, leave behind what got them where they are today and start out as freshmen, as novices in something new that could be sinister, that could reveal them to be uh, not as omniscient as they feel, felt yesterday uh, because they're thrown into a, a novice situation all of a sudden. So I think we'll, we'll move through this stage in a predictable way. That's the way uh, 
organic intelligence works. You first, you're alerted to something that's new that could possibly be a threat. Then you, you become used to it. And then eventually um, people smarter than we are figure out ways to, to make it acceptable and complementary, and um, it becomes incorporated into our, our work or the work of our successors, just as the electric typewriter that I got as a gift when I went off to college in 1959 was, you know, that, that was pretty special. That was, that was my access to um, success in college, mm -hmm. although I still yeah. had to learn how to make corrections. Mm -hmm. That's, I hope that's responsive, Sky. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. You remind me of a quote, and I don't know if it was Margaret Mead or not, but they said they were training our students to live in our parents' world. And we need to be more aware of the world our children are living in and adapt the training and teaching and and all of their education to fit the world they're living in, not the one we came from. So that's a perspective there as well. We'll go to the next question then. Our next question is from John Foltz in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania. I'm finding it interesting to watch faculty reactions to ChatGPT. Most on our campus are fearful. I'm at the other end, excited to introduce AI in my media courses. Thoughts? That's an interesting area, isn't it? Because media is the study of that sort of emotional layer and the re uh, representation of our world. And if we apply AI, is the representation artificial? Uh, is, is living in a virtual or uh, manufactured world uh, any better or worse than what we're in today? But of course, there's a case to be made that the world we're in right now is pretty manufactured and we're living inside cars and inside houses and inside tall buildings that were all manufactured just for humans. They're not natural elements. Uh, I'll let Chris come back on and uh, maybe address this. Thank you. And thanks, John, for the question. Uh, I spent uh, 40 or 50 years as a faculty member uh, observing the ways that faculty react to something new. And uh, your description of uh, the case at your university uh, fits the pattern. That is, some, some like yourself are excited about something new that has possibilities that draw you toward uh, experimenting and trying out this something new to see how it does or whether it does fit with um, what you've been doing, what you're trying to do, and and your forward-looking uh, thoughts about what you might be able to do that you couldn't do yesterday with the help of AI. Whereas um, a majority are more conservative. That is, they wish to conserve what they have become good at, um, the the way we've done, the way we've quote always done things, and this will fade just as many other um, new introductions, introductions of new systems have faded. Um, you probably remember when your campus first introduced a learning management system, something like Blackboard, and that was not well received by the faculty who had to learn how to use a system that involved a lot more disclosure of the things that usually happened in the privacy of their offices. 
the ways that they organized a course and forecast what the schedule would be and how the uh, how assessment or evaluation would happen and so forth and so on. So uh, a lot of it felt like extra work, um, reframing uh, our courses to fit the constraints of the new learning management system. And it really was about not wanting to be managed. Faculty don't want to be managed. Thank you. Um, but uh, it's inevitable, of course, we are managed. And so uh, I think that my best advice for you, John, is this too will pass. Give it some time. And in the meantime, enjoy being an, an early adopter. There's probably an opportunity here, uh, John Foltz, is it? Uh, in your media course, it would be worthwhile to examine the alarmist attitude the media has taken, and the popular media, I mean the news media, uh, have taken to an innovation like this. Uh, in its early infant system, it looks threatening. Um, but I, I don't know when I was last threatened by a three-year-old. So uh, I think maybe just looking at how people choose to see it as alarmist and communicate that to the broader public is more interesting. What are they afraid of? And and we'll probably get into what we're afraid of, too, in the in this process, too. Uh, Guy, you're next. Yeah, two, two things really come to mind, both in 1987. One of them was, uh, and Chris, did you say you got a, an electric typewriter uh, when you got sent off to college, or was it a manual? It was electric, and that what? was, that was <laughs> I was an early adopter. Okay, so back in 1987, when I was in keyboarding class, we had to learn on the old school, big, you know, mechanical, and I still have one. I, I like to write my thank you cards with it, uh, it gives it that old school polish. <laughs> Um, but yeah, we didn't get to use the electric ones until later. So uh, in this conversation here of, of ease of use, sometimes it is that the technology has to be shown of like how much easier it is, especially doing something like whiteout versus hitting a backspace button, delete, and having the whiteout actually punch that letter out. The other thing from 1987 was at a computer class, and we had a grid that we were to draw a uh, whatever design we wanted, and then we had to go program it into the computer. And nowadays, to be able to to do the happy face that I spent hours um, having to say, okay, this line, this dot, fill it in. I mean, it took, it took forever to put all that data into the computer, X, Y, fill, yes, on, off, one, zero. And nowadays I can just grab my Wacom and go, Poop, or my iPad. So sometimes it's showing the ed educators what's possible and how they're doing it in the olden days. Um, and one of the things that really uh, blew my mind at uh, CS was learning about this whole uh, RoboFlow. So RoboFlow is kind of like for you 3D printer people when you first saw this ability to uh, to uh, uh, download things. Well, people are starting to upload their their projects and show you how. Uh, like this is cards. So that this thing, <laughs> this computer vision, you know, look at how fast this is. It's it's saying, okay, I know what card that is, and I can. So it's trained it. And so people are uploading their training, their object detection trainings, and there's hundreds of thousands of these things, if not millions already up online. And this is just the beginning. I mean, airports, uh, gaming manufacturers, self-driving cars, there's all kinds of stuff. And I'll put a link in the chat. And there's just going to be so many things, you know, plant 
plant documentation and, you know, like what's going on, what's a healthy plant, what's an unhealthy plant, soybean, you know, for farming, agricultural, medical, what's, what's a good pill look like? What's a beat up uh, pill that shouldn't go What's a, um, there's maritime things, uh, you know, water levels, all kinds of just detections that are happening super fast. So I think when people see the ease of use, (laughs) yeah, when people see the ease of use and the the potential benefits, they're going to, they're going to dive in. So it's all just a matter of show, showing and demonstrating how it'll be used in the real world. Well, education is about passing along the knowledge accumulated from previous generations. So we've codified it in books, we've codified it in speech and recordings, and now we're, you know, the video libraries on YouTube are going to be mined for what they can tell us. Uh, Chris, you can respond to this. I had one other idea for John Fultz uh, that that his situation uh, presents as an opportunity, I think, and that is perhaps to get yourself and your students involved in um, documenting or surveying the attitudes of your fellow faculty members toward AI. It's a a brief window of opportunity to uh, survey or describe, you know, put together a simple uh, survey monkey, three question survey that describes the range of responses to uh, the uh, recent publicity about AI and its possibilities. Um, it's a moment in time that you could then contrast with a moment in time a year from now and see how much or whether uh, there are any changes in those attitude or in the distribution of uh, defensive or anxious attitudes versus um, acceptance or even incorporation. So jump on it, jump at the opportunity to get your students involved in some uh, real-time interesting research ripped from the headlines. Mm-hmm. And Sky. Chris, you made my day. The organic intelligence phrase just went, ah, but more importantly, wisdom. It's not knowledge. Wisdom is the use of knowledge. And consequently, you bring your sage history of experience to this community and and my, the the second best advice was this too shall pass in my head i heard breathe brother just breathe thank you chris thank you yes next question our next question comes from chris taylor in carlsbad california chat ai has the ability to teach a user to write an api to use chat ai within a user's program or database Will using AI become a beginner advanced class in school? Go ahead, John. Yes, I think um, in general, I think our approach to to new tools like this, and it has to kind of following that last conversation, is avoidance from something and aggression towards something are likely not going to be helpful long term. I think we want to help teach our students and learners to be appropriately mindful in how they engage these tools so that they can think critically about them and use them to their fullest. And to that end, I think it will probably start in like a library type curriculum about how to use it as a tool to look up information or um, in your writing. And eventually it'll become a starting point for many of our uh, education curricula. Uh, My feeling is that it it will be uh, a beginner class in a programming school or programming uh, lessons, uh, it'll be something that is augmenting the process. 
and it's uh, advancing it to where you're looking at the larger meta than just the words on the screen. Uh, learning to code is tricky, tough, and requires long-term application of time. And uh, perhaps if a chat AI uh, gives us the opportunity to get past that and just look at procedures, processes, and error correction, then maybe a person becomes a programmer in the same way they always do. Uh, two of the brightest and best programmers I've ever met came into it because they were gamers. They played games of video games and they had the chairs and the devices and all the rest. And then they got disgruntled with the challenges in the games and they suddenly said, I think I can do better than this. I think I could write a better game. So they went out and learned how to program and work in C++ and all the rest, and then became people who then offered that service to everybody else. So it's possible that chat AI or something like it inspires somebody to do a different kind of career where they support this and, and make it useful. Guy? Yeah, I gave the example earlier of how we used to have to write code, you know, 10 and then 20 and you know, all these lines and nowadays it's it's building blocks when i when i watched um my fifth grader at the time go to a, a stem uh section of his class and they were doing lego robotics and it was all just you know pre-programmed bits so i think the the learners that want to break those apart once they see what the action does like and they had a, a little dozer that would scoop stuff uh, other legos up so they had like a grid where it had to drive down this place scoop up this thing and bring it to another place and dump it and so if you did the program right it worked if you didn't it did not work but some students wanted to know why it worked and they wanted to see the the code so they wanted to break it apart it was there so, but i think that's where the learners really uh get it where they see the, what happens in the real world or what can it do and now i want to learn why or tweak it or customize it because i have my own ideas my fascination with cars started with a lawnmower that I found in the outside of somebody's yard as sort of throwing away a lawnmower, and I took it home and took it apart. And I spent a whole summer learning internal combustion, two-stroke, uh, where fuel comes from, why oil is there. And that's just because this device was useless. And then it put me in the whole thing of loving cars and making it, you know, in my teen years, cars were everything. And so knowing how they work, it's just a natural inclination. You can take object-oriented code and paste it together and string it into a flow, but as somebody's going to be more curious. They're going to say, I want to know why this happens, not just how to make it work. So yeah, I think, Guy, you're on the right path there. Sky? I love your analogy of the, the gamers wanting to deconstruct something, and then you brought in the concept of your Briggs and Stratton because I were, I tore that one apart as it as it um, in shop in uh, what when is junior high I guess and learned about the combustion engine but it was me physically getting in there getting my hands dirty pulling something apart and then putting it back together so it worked see that was the other opportunity and I guess that's where I'm I'm hearing maybe the the profit the profit of uh, Seth Godin several years ago talking about don't get so hung up on the technology try to figure out what it is in the future. The problem is that you want to solve because technology is going to be, you know, taking care of a lot of the technical, I mean, a lot of the little detaily stuff. So what is the problem we want to solve? I know getting philosophical. Sorry, but no, you brought it up. Okay. You, brought it, you brought up the Briggs and Stratton engine. Philosophy right? so. is part of education <laughs> all the time. We'll go to the next question. Our next question is from Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin. 
Jeffrey asks, interesting point made on math. Some schools don't teach cursive, so on that line, do you think AI will replace other subjects like calculus? Will it replace calculus? Having never actually graduated from a course of calculus, I don't know what's involved, so I'll let Guy Cochran step in here. It's kind of funny. We have this fancy uh, conference room at, at the office and it's glass table, glass walls, big screen and all that stuff. And uh, one day after I got my first uh, Amazon Alexa, I said, I need one of these at the office. And people are like, why do you want it? And once I got it rigged up above the conference room table, um, there was a math problem. You know, we sell we sell at retail a lot of items. So you got to do math and sometimes it's complicated. So I just ask Alexa, what's 12 times 72? And, you know, I couldn't do that math in my head that fast, but she can do it for me. And so as I started using it over the years, people started going, whoa, that thing's pretty cool. And then I would turn off the lights and then uh, there was a fan out in the hallway. If we needed to say some sensitive stuff, I'd turn on the fan and they're like, wow, this this stuff's really cool being able to do it. But yeah, I think that simple math problems, uh, being able to just yell them out. Yeah, I mean, it works on Siri, Google Voice and on Alexa. To, to, if you just ask it, what's what's this math equation? It'll just say it. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's pretty amazing that it's already happening. It's already there on devices that are 20 bucks. It's embedded but invisible at this point. Sky? Yeah. Again, you know I love story. And I heard the story, and I'm not gonna don't I'm not gonna be quoted on this, but I was told that uh, a math system was developed to be able to prove a point of two different stories of history and the alignment of the stars and the timings of things. So I'm I'm curious to this question of what will calculus be replaced by AI? It's like, well, again, what's the story you're trying to prove? All right, next question. The next question is from I myself. The Office Hours community is largely pro using AI. What are some cautions that we should consider as educators? Go ahead, John, lead us in. <laughs> I was just thinking, whenever I've put something into ChatGPT in a domain that I'm familiar with, even moderately familiar with, there's been at least one error, like factual error. And I think it's something for us to be mindful of as we approach just encouraging people to use it to learn new things. Okay. No, that is a caution. That's a necessary caution with any application of something new that we don't yet completely understand. Next question. Our next question is from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. Do we have a problem with the gap with those who embrace AI technology and those who are only interested in what it can do with their hands? Maybe, Tony, you could explain in broader terms what that gap might be. So, <laughs> interesting enough, I wanted to share this. And what this is, is... Touchscreen conveyor belt McDonald's opens first largely automated location, and this is in Texas. And this is a full, I think there's one human being in the whole restaurant, and it is totally automated. And the reason that I lift it up is because um, there is a technology gap not just in the United States, but in the world. And there are people who have no interest in AI and they're going about their daily lives doing the work that they are able to do with their hands. And what may happen is that these people 
who are doing the work that they've been doing with their hands may find themselves with nothing to do because a machine is doing it. And so is there a plan? Should there be a plan to be inclusive in order to get people who typically have always done things with their hands to brace, embrace technology? And it's not a, a question that I think that we can answer here today, but it was just something that I wanted to lift up for us because all of us are obviously excited about AI and the potential for things that can be done. But what happens to this workforce that is replaced at a McDonald's or Burger King or um, driving a transport, uh, a long distance uh, tractor trailer or uh, an oil rig where everything is automated and there are no longer need for roughnecks to be out there risking their lives to to pull the oil in mm-hmm. um and so i i just think that it's something that we should be talking about with the ai conversation because when machines take over things that we might consider mundane but people have been actually earning a significant quality life, a wage of living, then that has to be replaced with something. Or, or some other thing has to expand. Uh, I go back to being taken on a tour of the Toyota History Museum. Toyota with a D because it wasn't a T until they started making cars. Before they made cars, they processed cotton into cloth. And they innovated in so many ways and took over cotton spinning and uh, weaving and uh, um, manufacturing cloth to such a degree that it put a whole lot of people out of business. And it was um, technology development that they kept secret for a long time and until it was exposed and then stolen and moved to places like the UK and and the US, the, the techniques the Japanese had were unique and different. But one of the things they recognized that it was putting weavers out of business. And this has always been something that we're moving forward with mechanized this or automated that or, I mean, long distance flight put maybe people thought it had put cruises out of business, but cruises just turned into something else, uh, more like a hotel on, on the water rather than just shipping people from country to country. So I guess I'm an eternal optimist, always have been. Uh, I see this as possibly opening up opportunities for people to have higher quality of life, to be able to do more involving jobs that actually matter and, and contribute to society, and that the attitude of people working at it is is more supportive of other people than, um, um, what would you call it, um, when they hold a grudge against society for only allowing them to have an entry-level job that's stultifying and difficult and doesn't pay very well, you're manufacturing a kind of objection to your own society. So giving people meaningful work is a great way of keeping them from fomenting revolution, but that's for a Sunday discussion, I suppose. We'll go to our next question. I think it's the last one. Our last question is from Chris Clark from Tempe, Arizona. A decade or more ago, Google proposed to scan every book in the Library of Congress collection. 
The proposed benefit to the world was to make all human knowledge available. But does anyone think that it was also an early attempt to feed the AI? Uh, go ahead, John. I absolutely think it was an attempt to feed the AI. Google's really good at getting humans to put data entry for free, <laughs> whether it's through CAPTCHAs or um, providing free resources that they can learn from using our data. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but having all the world's knowledge available hasn't necessarily made the world a better place either. Ironically, the uh, link in our Discord for ChatGPT and education uh, looking at cheating uh, asks that same question. Do you really want ask students to help train a machine tool as part of their education? So I think it brings us right full circle here. Uh, that concludes our discussion today, and it was more fascinating than I expected it to be. Thanks to uh, all the people who brought their expertise to us and uh, for Guy for showing us some of the uh, applications that CES had out. Uh, a big thank you also to all the people who participated today. You're the community who make Education Hour possible. Uh, we would also like to acknowledge all of the committed people who volunteer every day uh, to operate office hours and after hours uh, for all of us. We'd like to thank today's panelists for providing that insight and uh, uh, this is going to change our society. So I, I think it was worthwhile to continue this discussion in the future and maybe education will bring it back whenever sometime in the future somebody is making future comments about it. You can join us again next week. Uh, next week, uh, the panelists are invited to join the first hour and participate in that portion as well. Uh, what will probably happen is that we'll take away this uh, short transition between the first hour and the second hour. So we're going to try that for a while, and we'll see what happens. But uh, you can come back to us. There's always people in after hours as well who can help you with questions about applying technology and education. So if you aren't watching us in real time and you're watching us on YouTube replay, then maybe visit our after hours and bring up a question there, and whoever may be there may be able to help you. Uh, that's it for Education Hour. We'll see you next week. What a conversation. It's so good to see you. Love your wisdom. Thank you for sharing. I'm breathing again. Mm. And Tony, I'm glad you were able to get back. Thank you, Dave. I'm glad I was able to get back to. <laughs> Tony, Thanks, I loved you. I loved your use case of the the minister at midnight on Saturday, looking for inspiration. <laughs> you, you know, uh, Dr. Clark. One of the things that occurred to me um, in, in that, because of the nature of what ministers try to do it actually in some ways creates more work because um, someone mentioned um, that they found an error in it and, and 